interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Uh, and a, a, a warm uh, welcome. Uh, if I were God, uh, and it's a good not, I'd give you all some extra merit points uh, showing up on a Saturday morning uh, for um, kind of serious, rigorous uh, Bible study. Uh, but uh, you get no credit for this uh, in eternity, uh, which is, after all, a good thing, isn't it? Uh, uh, that that you're not here for ulterior motives. Uh, I often wonder uh, with students in my classes uh, why they're really there. Uh, and uh, I try to disabuse them early on. It's not merely for a credential or a grade. I don't have to worry about that in the audience uh, here this morning. So I am, I am grateful that you're here out of the goodness of your own intentions. Uh, and though I may try to make you feel a little bit bad about yourself as we get started this morning, uh, there's hope at the end uh, anyway, uh, that uh, uh, Jesus, who is the true image, is the one who recreates us, uh, that there is no credit uh, we take uh, for uh, his work. So um, uh, I'm going um, to just summarize where we were last night. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you were uh, uh, in the auditorium uh, last night, but I, I tried to uh, make some suggestions uh, that I hope were uh, relatively obvious uh, that we, uh, in our own cultural context, um, uh, recognize how fragile our own identities are. Right. Uh, and that uh, that fragileness, if we ponder it long enough, um, patiently enough, leads us in some directions. And it's those other directions I want to take us uh, this morning. Uh, we, we all experience the stress of life. You know, I, I used to think, I don't know how long ago it was, that eventually life would slow down. Right? It doesn't. Right? It doesn't. Uh, and... and I never knew my grandparents uh, very well. They they passed away when I was a, a young child. But I got to know my wife's grandparents. My gra- uh, her grandfather uh, passed away about a decade ago uh, at 106 years old. Uh, life moved at a very different pace for him than me. Right? And we used to talk uh, uh, about how much had changed in his lifetime. Uh, it wasn't that... I had changed from him, but that the world had changed. And because the world had changed, I felt it. Right? So uh, uh, in, in so many different ways, uh, we live with the conflict of worlds, the conflict of... Uh, uh, with conflict. Uh, I don't need to cash that out anymore. Think about how many people are in your email address book. It's obscene. I used to say, how many people do you send Christmas cards to? Uh, We don't send Christmas cards too much anymore. 
in, in one sense. You try to keep connections with far more than you're actually able to keep connected with. The result of which is that you feel the stress, this kind of internal uh, fragileness. There's lots of other uh, uh, stresses uh, in our life. That little beast that we keep on uh, our desk, uh, the, the computer, uh, it's a powerful little tool. Right? And they get smaller and smaller, it seems like. They get more and more powerful. But they, we, you know it, I know it, they've got, they've got me around the neck. Two weeks ago, my hard drive crashed. Right? Life just stops. Right? Uh, it's as if I can't exist without this. Uh, and I realize how much I am invested in the tools that would have seemed absolutely bizarre to my wife's grandfather. Right? He, he was not answerable to this little technological beast in the way that I am. Now, the result of which, I can do things he never even dreamed of. I can visit places. Uh, I can visit Afghanistan right here on my desk, right? Or, uh, um, or China, right? The instantaneousness of our existence is really overwhelming, uh, but also quite stressful because I can do so much there's that internal expectation that I will do more than I am able. Well, um, I don't largely have to persuade you of that, I don't think. Maybe a decade ago, two decades ago, we weren't as cognizant of how deeply embedded we were in the stresses of our times. I think we're much more aware of that. And so I want to, uh, uh, this morning uh, and in our session this afternoon, uh, think about uh, mapping ourselves into a larger story than simply the story of our times. And I, I do think that that's a, an urgent task for us, uh, that we recognize that our narratives have not simply begun uh, with the beginning of our own earthly existence, right, in 1956 in my case, right? that I don't simply belong to this time. There's a sense in which I am a character in a story that began a long time ago. Right? Uh, it's a very interesting story. Lots of twists and turns in this plot. Uh, and until I recognize myself as a character in that wider story and how it talks about me, I will not understand my own place in this time, in this world. Uh, a brief note on our method this morning. A lot of cultural, or at least some cultural clues last night. This morning, I'm going to turn mostly to the scriptures and mostly to these three paradigmatic chapters in the book of Genesis. If you get these three chapters right, everything else follows straightforwardly. I tell that my students all the time. All the clues are in Genesis 1 to 3. But unfortunately, Genesis 1 to 3 has been captured by other interests in our age. And we have not read it theologically. We have not read it as the beginning of the great story of redemption. We've, uh, we've allowed it to be captured by our own cultural context. 
hope to cash that out. And in the great tradition of Christendom before the last 200 years, this early account of human creation being created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, was the fundamental truth about our identity. Uh, And the rest of the book, if you will, the rest of the canon, uh, played out the story of that identity. And so I want to suggest that we think of our identity rooted in the Imago Dei, the image of God. But just so that it's a little more interesting than you suppose, there are only three instances in which that phrase is used in the Bible. Right? All of them in the first nine chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1.27, And then we don't see it again. And it's that I want to uh, uh, kind of provocatively suggest why. Why does, the, uh, why does the language of the image, the image of God, drop out of the canon virtually? It tells us something very interesting, I'll suggest, about who we are. Uh, uh, read the grand theological treatises of the church across the last two millennium, and when they get to the section about human identity what we might call theological anthropology, a theology of human identity. There are vast uh, uh, pages spent talking about the Imago Dei. The reality is there are three verses in all of the Bible that use this phrase. Why? Why do we build this enormous, elaborate, conceptual framework in the history of Christian reflection around this term? Hopefully by the end of the day you'll understand I'm not going to give it away yet. Um, let me also suggest uh, that uh, I, want to, I want to think about the scriptures uh, as they think about themselves. Um, it's interesting uh, that they start at the beginning and they end at the end. Right? I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a point overlooked often, actually, uh, that the the word, the living word, starts a story and completes the story. And I don't know about you, though, I can't find my name here anywhere. I'm somewhere between the beginning and the end. I know that. And so the, the Bible frames my existence by reaching back before me and reaching ahead after me and situates me on this kind of narrative arc what I call a framework, a theological framework that maps me into the past, the present, and the future. It it reminds me that I am a creature in history, of history, that I belong to to this story. I'm embedded. My identity is embedded in this framework. The result of which is that I see... I see, the language of the eyes is very important uh, today. I see things differently. We think of that great children's story in the Bible, David and Goliath. I, uh, I think too often we kind of um, miss the, 
the great storytelling of the Bible. It's a wonderful uh, story. Uh, intended far more for adults than it is for kids, I'm persuaded. Uh, although kids often get it, right? The, the wisdom of youth is often much better than the wisdom of age. Uh, but yeah, it just set the story up very, uh, very quickly as a note on method uh, here. Uh, Goliath, right, 10 feet tall or whatever, you know, he's got this massive armor. He's got this spear that, you know, reaches to the, to the uh, sky practically. And nobody in all of Israel will fight Goliath. I mean, they see this beast of a man and they're terrified. And in ancient warfare, it wasn't uncommon that you'd have a single representative from each army kind of duel it out, kind of, uh, um, kind of a wrestling match, if you will. Uh, and so uh, uh, Saul, uh, the, the king that Israel had asked for and got what they asked for when they asked for it, uh, uh, pleads with his people to, to find somebody that willing to fight Goliath. But they see Goliath. Now, David comes along and just, uh, uh, it's a whole different uh, uh, conference, uh, 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 the stories of Scripture. But David sees something nobody else sees. I mean, Goliath is only 10 feet tall. He's only got a spear. He's only got armor on. I mean, who does he think he is by comparison to the living God? I mean, there's no big deal here. And so you have this very interesting conversation going on between David and Goliath there in the back. Goliath says, how dare you come out with, uh, against me without any armor? I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds of the air. Verbatim, then David, this young, probably 18, 19 years old, says precisely the same thing. How dare you come out as an offense against the living God? And so you have this battle of vision. What do you see? What do you see when you see the world? It's all about the eyes often in Scripture. Uh, And that's become uh, important. So I want to suggest anyway, this is about a a, a different way of seeing, a different way of viewing the world, uh, a different vision. So it, it maps us into this story, the past, the present, and the future. The result of which then, we see things differently, right? I mean, I, I, I have that dreadful tendency. Some of you have it as well. You pick up a, a novel and you read the first chapter and then what do you do? You go right to the end, right? You want to know how it ends. It's just awful. My wife slaps me when she finds me doing this, right? Well, in one sense, we have the whole story here. You know the end. You do know the end, but, but oftentimes you, you still don't get it. I don't get it, right? And I, I'm still persuaded the things that I see are, are more real than the things I can't see. But the story reminds us that the end is already been written. Right? It's a very important uh, point. So, um, Genesis 1, finally. Um, Genesis 1 is unlike any chapter in all of Scripture. Uh, the first book of the Bible, as most commentators will suggest, are uh, organized around the great Toldoths. These are the generations. These are the stories. There's ten of them, actually, in the book of Genesis. Uh, 
right? Uh, and uh, uh, Moses, who is the editor uh, here, I'm more and more persuaded, uh, the, the master uh, literary craftsman, uh, trained in the royal courts of Egypt, uniquely qualified to frame uh, this material, uh, has a, a, a genealogy of stories. It's very important uh, uh, to Moses. For Israel now in the wilderness has to be reminded that the Lord their God is the God who, and then often Moses recites the stories, to remind them what God has done on their behalf. Right? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who. Right? This is the Genesis material in the background. But Genesis 1 has no told off. It's not part of the story. It's a, it's a, a, a prologue. It's, a, uh, it, it, it's a, a chunk of material before the story gets going. Uh, some of you, have, if you've looked carefully at the book of Genesis, these first three chapters, you'll notice there are actually two stories, what looks like two stories, of creation. We can, in Q&A, uh, get to the point how these two stories connect. But they're very different kinds of tone. Right? We know the first uh, chunk of material, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4, 2, 3, some dispute where uh, that first table ends. Uh, but the, 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 the framework of that first uh, chunk of material is the seven days. Right? We, 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 we know it. It kind of sticks out at you. But then the whole tone changes in the second story, the second chunk of material, uh, the stuff about uh, this tree of knowledge of good and evil and the taking from the tree and the banishment from the garden. It's a very different uh, story. In the first chunk of material, Genesis 1, uh, uh, God is known as Elohim, uh, the Almighty. In the second uh, chunk of material, uh, God is Elohim, Yahweh, the compound name. One of the very few instances, actually, where we have a compound name for God. Now, Yahweh, the most common name for God in Israel, is the, uh, uh, carries the kind of connotation of the Lord of history. Right? The Lord in history, the Lord over history. So here now we've set up with God who is almighty, who, who then, the author tells us, is the almighty Lord of history. I want to suggest, and uh, uh, time in Q and A, that history begins at two four, not at one one. Right. Purposely, if you don't get that point, you miss the whole Bible. Right. History begins at two four, not at one one. Well, what in the world then is going on in one one? Um, this is the overture before the symphony gets going. Right? This is the preface before the novel starts. This tells us who the central character is in the story. Uh, Adam and Eve, by name, don't come into Genesis uh, 2 and 3. They're not named. Right? We have no plot in Genesis 1. God creates, and everything else is created. God speaks, 
and everything else is silent. And so let me make two suggestions, flesh them out just briefly, before we focus on 127 in particular, this great text of the Imago Dei. Two kind of, uh, what shall we call them, templates, two themes, two frameworks to understand this chunk of material in 1-1-2-2-4, that we have a liturgy of creation. Uh, Shall we almost say a hymn with seven stanzas? I think it's much closer to to the actual story to the actual, excuse me, the actual uh, form of the text than to suppose there's some chronology here. Uh, it, it really is this exalted hymn, a liturgy of creation. A second theme, a dominant theme in this first uh, table, often very much out of view for us moderns. I think in view is a temple. Uh, what uh, early Jewish uh, exegesis uh, referred to as a cosmic temple. That what's being described for us is the building of a, a place, namely the whole world, uh, as God's temple. Uh, a really dominant theme uh, there. And on the book table, let me give a couple of plugs uh, both Greg Beale's uh, work, uh, We Become What We Worship, and Richard Middleton's book, uh, Liberating Image, pick up this theme. It's a very uh, much more prevalent theme uh, among evangelicals than it has ever been before. Uh, let me just pick them up uh, separately. The liturgy, or what I, I want to call the song of creation, and the temple of creation, or the creation of a temple, in which the other, uh, if you will, stories take place. Uh, The first uh, uh, theme, the song of creation, uh, uh, Genesis 1 has a lyric quality to it. Lots of repetition, phrases that get repeated almost uselessly, unless you're writing music. Uh, it, it's really very interesting. We pick up on the sevens, but there are a host of other repetitions. There are repetitions of ten, repetitions of seven, repetitions of three. The author understood how numbers and music go together. I mean, it, it really is uh, very elegantly written. In this respect. And often the repetition of phrases, and God said, or let there be, uh, God blessed them, God made these, all these phrases that occur uh, in repeated form are independent of the repetition of days. We focus immediately on this uh, lyric quality of seven. Uh, But there's a host of phrases repeated that are not attached to the seven days. I mean, I, again, I just marvel at how well-crafted 
this piece of literature is. Which reminds me, not to pay so much attention to the, to the uh, literary craftsmanship, but don't forget what it points at. Right? Don't see it for what it isn't, but what it is. Now, it is absent the ordinary Hebrew parallelisms that we find in Hebrew poetry, for example, often in the Psalms, except at one critical point, Genesis 1.27, right? It's as if the author there uh, stumbles over his words, unless you're missing the point. Let me turn here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Three times we have the Hebrew verb bara, create. Actually, this is the third time that verb has been used, and the third time it's used three times. It's as if the author is saying, red flag here, folks, don't miss this point. This is something really unique going on. God creates... Now, did you get that point? God creates. No, no, don't miss the point. God creates. Now, uh, unless you're uh, trained in music or poetry, uh, uh, if you read USA Today as your primary form of, uh, 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 of reading, you, you miss these uh, poetic uh, literary forms. You, you ask the question, well, what happened? When did it happen? What happened after it happened? Right. And who's, who, who, who's the result? Who, what's the cause? But the, the Hebrew mind, the, the, the ancient mind, uh, didn't think of it like this. Uh, and sometimes when we enter their world, I want to enter it on their terms and not ours. It has a liturgical bent uh, uh, here. Now, the second, this temple theme. Um, throughout uh, this uh, chunk of material in Genesis 1 are, are the connections between creation and completion, between filling and governing, very key terms in this first table. Right? Uh, so that in the Psalms you have a uh, recurring theme of God's glory filling the whole earth. Right? Kind of an odd thing. Isn't God already Filling the whole, isn't he ubiquitous? Isn't he omnipresent? Isn't he already, I mean, he's here, right? How can his glory fill the earth anymore? But it's a constant theme in Israel, as it is, I think, in the New Testament as well. This notion in which God's presence, though it's everywhere, is also redemptively present in specific particular places. And it grows. This whole this whole notion of God's redemption going, growing, filling, begins here in Genesis 1. But we also have the language of governing. So what do the sun and the moon do with the light and the dark? Very interesting. They govern. Now, what's that about? How is it that the... The stars govern time. Well, in a moment, we'll, we'll go to day four, which is where you have this language of the sun and the moon governing. But they 
the clue here Moses gives us is that they are signs for seasons and festivals. That they order Israel's life so that Israel's feast days, that is, holy days, their sacred reminders of what God has done, is built into their calendar. That time itself is a calendar of worship. We have a pretty ordinary calendar, we Christians, once a week, right? Now, I I think it's really a rich calendar, actually, that the Sabbath brings all of the feast days of Israel's and completes them in our resurrection day. But uh, there is a, a routine that's wired into us that, in one sense, time governs us here from the very beginning in God's temple. The patterns, I want to suggest, of filling and of governing, in particular, testify to a building project. Not so much the building of this grand cosmic universe, although that's surely the case, but of a temple, a religious, sacred space. Now, it happens to be equivalent with the whole universe. That's God's temple. So he tells David, for example, I can't be... Contained, Yahweh says to David, I can't be contained in a temple built with human hands. The whole universe is my temple. It's very powerful work. Now, perplexing why he then lets David's son, Solomon, build him a temple. But we'll leave that aside for now. Uh, Taken together, the temple and the hymn of creation, let me suggest Genesis 1 is the preface, the prologue, the overture to this grand symphony of redemption. It it answers the question, who are you? You are created in God's temple to worship God. What's the climax? By all accounts, the climax of Genesis 1. It's the Sabbath day, the seventh day. It's interesting about the seventh day, never ends. No morning and evening on the seventh day. Time itself changes under the rubric of worship. It's unlike the other days. Uh, uh, All too quickly, let me walk our way through the stanzas of this grand hymn and pay attention a little bit to the temple God is building. For in the middle of the temple, there's going to be an icon, an idol, an image. It's you and me. We are, trying to use that term positively in the first instance, uh, we are God's idols. He has crafted us with his own hands out of the dust of the earth to be his representative. In the temple, this cosmic temple. But uh, that's where I'm going. Let me start at the beginning a little bit. Uh, what happens on day one? Genesis 1, 3. Uh, uh, lots of interesting things about Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. But uh, 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 let me just uh, skip over into day one. 
day, day one is the point at which day and night, light and dark, are separated. Now, if this were mere chronology, why don't we get the sun and the moon here? But in a, in a hymn, in a, 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 a song, uh, themes are not always played out chronologically. Uh, the author is here trying to draw our attention in one sense that day one matches up with, is paired with day four. It's so obvious that day four governs day one. In fact, that's the language there in uh, uh, Genesis 1, uh, 16 and 17. Time day and night, is filled, governed with a divine purpose. That's the point. Day two. Uh, What happens on day two? The sky and the seas come into being. If day one is paired with day four, as stanzas that echo each other, day two is clearly paired with day five. You'd see this... This uh, symphony building, if you will, these stanzas. For what happens on day five? The birds and the fish that do what? They fill the sea and the skies. The world is, if you will, the divine temple that is being filled by the living God with living creatures. The created order is sacred, if you will, precisely because God is filling it. Uh, uh, To our uh, our concern on the question of human identity, we have three days left. Day one is matched with four. Two is matched with five. We've got three days. One of them is not matched with anything. Day seven. It's the odd number. In almost all ancient literature, seven plays the role of what? Perfection, completion. When is the the holiest of holy days in Israel on their calendar? The Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. When the high priest and only the high priest once a year goes into the Holy of Holies, the temple of Israel, to make atonement for the sins of Israel. When does it happen? On the seventh day of the seventh month. It's a very interesting uh, uh, issue uh, for Israel. What happens on the seventh day of this temple building project? God rests. He is satisfied. Right? He delights in his work. Right? And it covers, if you will, all the other seven days. It's why things are made, that they would find their rest in God. This sets up, then, every character we meet in the Bible whose fundamental identity is rooted in this Sabbath rest. That's who we are. Now, we'll run away from that identity uh, after Genesis 3, but uh, uh, holding that story. So we have uh, two more days to account for just briefly. Day 3 and day 6. 
And sure enough, they're paired, aren't they? Day three, the land comes. And on day six, the land animals come. And the land animals fill and govern. So the themes of filling and governing, which had been attached to separate days to this point, get conjoined, combined on this final day. So that the great image of God in the temple is to fill the earth and to govern the earth. Very interesting. Now, uh, one little parenthetical note here. Uh, We don't even get our own day all to ourselves. Uh, That there is enormous solidarity with the rest of the land animals and humankind. There is great difference, yes, but mostly I, I think we need to be reminded in our own day that there's great solidarity with the rest of the created order. The fact that we share a day with the rest of the animals. Uh, the, the little plug I'm, I want to suggest here is, is that we are embodied people, that we belong to this created animal order. Right? We function, uh, if you will, with a uh, organic uh, pattern uh, of bodies uh, and selves. Right? We can't separate out if we as if we are really something other than our bodies. But uh, 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 another sermon there, I'm sure. Um, So the temple is built. It's built for worship. Uh, uh, And it's not unusual that in the ancient Near Eastern uh, world, temples somehow were structured around sevens. Seven is often seven sides to the temple. Often you saw seven altars. Lots of these ancient temples had all this symbolism of seven. And sure enough, God's temple does too. But it's time rather than space that is ordered according to seven. An early Jewish commentator puts it this way in in commenting on Genesis 1. The highest and in the truest sense, the holy temple of God is, as we must believe, here in the first century Jewish commentary, the holy temple of God is the whole universe, having for its sanctuary the most sacred part of all existence, even heaven, for its votive ornaments, the stars for its priests, the angels who are servants of his powers. This is a very old way to understand Genesis 1. And it seems to me we would do well to recover the wisdom of uh, earlier commentary on Genesis. Uh, now, um, I'm really after 127. Uh, 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 but you have to set the stage uh, here. If you don't see the stage set, uh, you miss the point of, of uh, 127. 127, God creates uh, uh, man in his image. The proverbial, shall we call them, pictures on the walls of the temple. To use a metaphor, you and I. And we are reflections of the God who made this temple. That's the graphicness of this language. We try to turn it into this large conceptual, nay, almost philosophical list 
of human attributes. What is the image of God? It's your mind or your spirituality. Uh, and in the uh, tradition of, of uh, Christian reflection on uh, 127, we, we have these grand lists of what makes us different from the animals. That must be the image, because the animals don't have the image, we have the image. And so we derive this list of, uh, of our essential attributes. No, right? No. This is a simple word picture, right? It's not a philosophical construct here. This is a, it's a very common uh, term, and it simply means what it means. It's an image of God. It's a picture. Right? It's a reflection. This grand little museum in Boston, the Children's Museum. You know, you, you've, you've probably been something similar, and they have these funny mirrors in them. We used to take our kids when they were a little bit younger, and you stand in the front of these mirrors and they make you, you know, five feet wide or 100 feet tall or whatever it looks like. Uh, uh, this is the, the image of the image that we've got here. It's a, it's a mirror. It's a picture. And what does, what's the function of a, of a mirror? To show forth what's in the mirror. The mirror can be understood by virtue of its uh, uh, chemical components. But when I woke up this morning and got that scare of what I look like by uh, uh, coming to the mirror, I'm not thinking about the sand and the uh, chemical components of this mirror. It's no, no long philosophical description of this thing. It shows me who I am. So, so that's all, that's all that's going on here in Genesis 1.27. Man, humankind, shows God. Now, when it becomes its own end, it's like, and here a little thought experiment again, uh, uh, the danger is that the mirror reflects another mirror. And if you can kind of get perspective, what would be manifest in a mirror that's reflecting another mirror? Nothing. Right. Until, until you put something, an object, in front of a mirror, nothing is reflected. Uh, uh, and it's that delicate, fragile character of our identity as images intended to reflect God, to find our significance, our meaning as image bearers, reflectors, mirrors, if you will, of God. No long place marker here for an otherwise list of human traits. Simple reflection going on. But it's a peculiar reflection. Right? Uh, there is, after all, a distinctive poetic character to 127, this repetition of phrases uh, that, uh, that we mentioned a moment ago, that bara, to create, is used three times. But... Notice if we step back just one verse into 126. I want, to, I want you to just pay attention to uh, the number of nouns or pronouns that are singular and the number of pronouns and nouns that are plural. Uh, it, it's really fascinating. Uh, God said, singular, God, let us, plural, 
make man, singular, in our, plural, image. After our, plural, likeness. Let them, plural, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and the livestock. This kind of threefold architecture of the temple. Uh, and then 127. So God, singular, created man, singular, though generic, in his singular image. In the image of God, singular, he created him, singular. Male and female, obviously plural, he created them. Now, what, what's the point uh, here? Is that this peculiar reflection of God is also all about relationship. We are created as relational beings. But it's, a, it's an interesting kind of, it's a peculiar relationship. We are not created as singular from the beginning to the end. There is a sense in which we are created in the plural. We are created as social beings, to use that kind of more contemporary language. We belong to a community. We belong to others. And here the paradigm of man and woman comes to the play. Karl Barth's famous uh, insistence that the image must connote a identity indifference, male and female, that we are constituted to belong to others who are not like us. Right. This is a, a whole key theme. But suffice it to say now, I, I, I want to just capture something of this uh, tension that we find at the heart of our identity, that we are individuals, singular. But we are never individuals outside of a relationship. And, and we will almost always veer to one side of that spectrum or another. We will almost always so emphasize, as we have for the last 50 years, our individual identity. Right? The singular character of who we are. I am this deep thing inside of me called me. Almost always leads to a culture of selfishness, of narcissism. Right, my generation, the boomers. And then the pendulum begins to swing the other direction. Right? And we begin to uh, experience our identity in relationship, in communities. We become defined by our ethnicity. We become defined by our, uh, um, our families, by our social networks. Uh, and inevitably, then, the pendulum swinging in the plural direction loses a sense of individual responsibility and accountability. Right. Uh, my mother made me do it. Right. It is the pendulum swinging. Uh, that is, I am no more than the context of my social relations. Now, uh, uh, back here in the scriptures, let me suggest I think at the heart of Genesis 1 is this peculiar relationship with this peculiar God, that we are not merely in relationship man and woman, right? Uh, we are in relationship to God, who is, as we come to discover, a divine family, a divine community, three persons. A um, whole other course on the Trinity, uh, terrific 
and terrifying mystery. But the genius of the gospel at the, from the beginning is that God is three and God is one. That God is relational. Right? At the core of, of God's being. And yet God is also one. I don't, I don't get it. Right? Uh, and uh, if you think about long enough, the, the headaches start, the migraines. Right? And you just get... But there's this great truth at the beginning that is reflected in who we are that we are constituted as one and as more than one. We find ourselves in giving ourselves away. Now, uh, uh, at the heart of creation, uh, Miroslav Vuf, professor at Yale, tells us, is... Uh, divine inclusion. And what uh, Miroslav means by inclusion in a wonderful book called uh, Exclusion and Embrace is that God makes us to include others. Primarily, fundamentally, God. We are constituted to include God in our life as the one that tells us who we are. But there's also a sense in which we are to be including others to find out who we are. Others often know us better than we know ourselves. I know, I, I know my children better than they know themselves. My wife knows me much better than I know myself. I don't often believe that, but it's true. It's true. Marriage is a predominant metaphor throughout the scriptures for this inclusion at the heart of our identity, of including space for another to tell us who we are. It's not the only metaphor, but it's a dominant metaphor. As uh, Miroslav says, uh, we are constituted, ourselves are constituted as a decentered center. Jesus puts it, uh, as we mentioned last night, that we find ourselves when we give ourselves away. There's that kind of unusual tension in our identities. Our self finds itself in the dynamic of the singular and the plural. This interwoven character of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Uh, And it's primarily uh, that other God that tells us who we are. For God knows us, not merely intellectually, better than we know ourselves. It's God who tells us who we are. It's not an unusual episode in our, uh, around our family dinner table. uh, When I'm offering a... uh, a sermonic prayer uh, that has the uh, well-being of our children in view with them present. And uh, my, my wife will often pull me aside afterwards and tell me what I was doing. 
right. uh, not merely to correct me and my intentions, but to help me see myself. Right? That, that in this relationship, she illuminates my identity. So it is, in the relationship with God, my identity is illuminated. Light is a very important issue in Genesis 1 as well. Uh, uh, we had more time we talk about uh, the significance of reflection and illumination. Very significant uh, themes uh, here. So, uh, uh, in summary, the image of God, profoundly simple. Because it's profoundly simple, it echoes across the rest of the canon in ways that we often miss. It is not a complex philosophical category, and when we go looking for it, we don't find it anywhere else, which is true, we don't, because that's not what it is. There is this grand inversion that takes place at the end of Genesis 1, actually Genesis 2-4, when the story actually begins. And that those constituted as mirrors, images, pictures, on the temple walls of the cosmic uh, 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 sacred space of God, uh, are so uniquely crafted that they are able to craft their own image. And so images become the maker of images, part of their creatureliness, their creativeness. And so the image is uh, uh, reversed. Uh, And it's that story I want to talk a little bit about in our second session. We've got a couple of minutes before we're going to take a break. Um, uh, lots, uh, lots that we've talked about. I, I hope in one sense profound, but obvious. Right. I hope I haven't said anything that you say, yeah, that's, that's just weird. Uh, well, maybe, but uh, it, 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 it's the obviousness of this complex simplicity that I'm, that I'm after. Uh, and I, I think that's what's so interesting about Genesis 1 uh, as it tells the story of our identity as worshiping beings.